Well, it's great to see you guys this morning. This is our last one. This is number four for the band and for myself, so hopefully we've got it down by now. Uh, We've got a few people downstairs, I believe, in overflow, so if you're downstairs, I'm just telling you guys right now, thank you for doing that. They're sitting and watching this on a small TV screen next to our kids' ministry, so um, thank you for your patience with us with that and for being downstairs and helping us out uh, with some of the chairs running out and so on. Uh, This morning, I'm going to begin by simply reading Luke's account. Uh, You don't need to turn there this morning. We're going to be in a different gospel, but I want to read Luke's account of the resurrection story. This is what he recorded happened that morning on Resurrection Sunday. In chapter 24, the historian writes this. But on the first day of the week, at early dawn, they went to the tomb taking the spices they had prepared, and they found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they went in, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were perplexed about this, behold, two men stood up by them in dazzling apparel. And as they were frightened and bowed their faces to the ground, the men said to them, Why do you seek the living one among the dead? He is not here, but has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day rise. And they remembered his words. And returning from the tomb, they told all these things to the eleven and to all the rest. That was Mary Magdalene and Joanna and Mary, the mother of James, and the other women with them who told these things to the apostles. But these words seemed to them as an idle tale. And they did not believe them. But Peter rose and ran to the tomb, stooping and looking in. He saw the linen cloths by themselves, and he went home marveling at what had happened. Babylon B is a satirical evangelical Christian website. And it's a lot like The Onion. If you know what The Onion is, then you might know the flavor of Babylon B. But it's a Christian evangelical website that's very satirical. It has a lot of uh, jokes on it, hyperbole. uh, And and it just has all these fake blogs, basically, that they write up that pokes fun at the Christian culture. Because the Christian culture, if you're around it enough, and certainly being a pastor within the Christian culture, you have to kind of make fun of some of the idiosyncrasies of God's people and just the way we do things and certain things within our culture that just seem kind of strange or out of, plat- out of, out of place. And so having a site with a little sarcasm, it's a good, good thing to go to every once in a while just to laugh at yourself. And so let me just give you a flavor for a few of the types of articles I was looking at last week on this particular website. So here's one. This, this one says, the man vows to forcibly remove any church visitor sitting in his seat this Sunday. And so what it'll do is it'll go on to say that this guy, uh, they'll, they'll make up like where he lives and what church he goes to. And it'll basically say if he's being interviewed by somebody from the media, and he'll basically say things like, if you're in my seat with my pew Bible, with my pencil, with my butt's impression in that seat, I will physically drag you out of this place and, and take you out kicking and screaming because that's my seat. And so it goes through this whole mockery of the way sometimes people might act within church to a lesser degree, of course, or hopefully. Here's another one. A biblical list of requirements for pastors has been amended to include Hebrew tattoos. So now it's okay for those. I'm surprised they didn't say Greek ones too. Here's another one. Teen applies entire case of Axe body spray before heading to youth group. 
And if you've ever hung out with middle school boys at youth group, this is what they do. And I just want to plead with the mothers in this room. Can you please tell your children, can you tell your sons, this does not impress girls. It is not helpful. A shower is helpful. This is not helpful. But I, I've seen this. I've smelled it. it. It's true. Here's another one. I, I love this one. This is, this is good news. Confirmed. Confirmed. Chick-fil-A open on Sundays in heaven. Thank the Lord. <laughs> I can't tell you how many times I've been in an airport traveling back home or to some place, and I'm just so excited because for so many years we didn't have Chick-fil-A's in Michigan. And so I'd be uh, excited about having it, and then only to realize it's Sunday, and they're closed, and I'm not very happy about things at that point forward. So here, here's another one. Steady finds connection between strong foyer coffee and sound church theology. <laughs> the stronger the coffee, the better the coffee, the better the theology. So yesterday I was looking and they came up with a new one, but this one was a little different approach. This was satire that was focused on the faith of unbelief. And it took a little bit more of a serious tone, but let me just read you this particular entry, this blog. Here's the title, Millions Worldwide Cling to Faith That Jesus' Resurrection Was Elaborate Hoax. The world this Easter weekend, millions of people around the world, world will affirm their sacred belief that the resurrection of Jesus of Nazareth around 30 AD in Jerusalem was an elaborate hoax pulled off by a few poor fishermen. Speaking to reporters, one man explained how his belief that Jesus did not actually rise from the dead is foundational to his life. At this time of year, my hope lies in my strong faith that the historical narratives and numerous eyewitness accounts of the risen Christ were in fact just part of the largest trick ever pulled off in the history of mankind. Without my faith, he goes on to say, that it was all actually a vast, intricate fabrication carried out for unclear reasons. I don't know where I'd be right now. Pressed about the logic behind his beliefs, how feasible it would be for a few commoners to convince so many others about something so sensational Without anyone bothering to fact check the details or question local eyewitnesses or how much sense it makes to believe that the disciples would suffer brutal, torturous deaths and watch others be martyred for a hoax that they knew to be false and gained nothing from, he smiled at reporters and replied, you just have to have more faith. There is powerful evidence, powerful evidence that gives credibility to the historical bodily resurrection of Jesus Christ. This morning, let's all start with this presupposition, this belief that Jesus did in fact rise from the dead. Now, maybe you're not there yet. Maybe the foundational claim of Christianity, which is the resurrection, is up for debate with you. But let's just assume, as I believe most of you do, let's assume the reality of the resurrection this morning. And if we believe this, this single event has literally turned the world upside down. Belief in the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. Belief in the resurrection of Jesus, it changes everything. 
The resurrection changes everything because the resurrection means that Jesus is, in fact, the Son of God, the Christ. And this means you cannot casually respond to the resurrection. You cannot say, sure, yeah, I've, I've heard that. I've heard about Jesus. I've heard that story from when I was a kid. I heard that maybe growing up in a church environment. I heard that from my parents or my grandmother or my friends. And sure, yeah, I believe it. Yeah, I, I believe he rose from the dead. Millions of people say they believe Jesus rose from the dead. Yet if this man, this God-man, actually did indeed rise from the dead, and people say he rose from the dead, yet people have not submitted their lives to his lordship. So people will say things like, I believe in Jesus. He has a place in my life. He has a piece of my life. He's a part of my life. And all of it makes me think of a question. Is it possible to have faith in the resurrection of Jesus Christ and yet not have your life completely affected by it? Is it possible to have faith in the resurrection of Jesus and yet not have your life completely changed by this event? Unaffecting faith in the resurrection is an oxymoron. It's a contradiction of terms. Faith that does not actively change you is not real faith at all. It's like eating kosher ham. It's a contradiction of terms and ideas. The ideas exclude each other. In other words, faith in the resurrection without any discernible impact on your life cannot exist. It cannot exist. The resurrection must have major implications. Belief, true belief, true faith in the resurrection of Jesus changes everything. We are left then with a question, and this is what we want to spend the rest of our morning on today. Here's the question. So what should be our response then to Jesus' resurrection? If this was a historical reality, if he rose, if that tomb is empty, then what should our response be to that event? See, when we think about this question, Before we discover the answer, we need to set the stage. So if you do have a Bible, make your way to Mark 8 this morning. Mark 8. We'll bring up the lights a little bit so you can read the text. That'd be great. But Mark chapter 8, we talked about this text on Good Friday, and we want to go back there again this morning. Uh, Just to give you some of the background, Jesus was on the road with his disciples in the small towns near Caesarea Philippi. Caesarea Philippi is a town or an area of towns about 105 miles north of Jerusalem. And for Mark's gospel, for his telling of the gospel of Jesus, the story of Jesus, this is where his whole letter turns. It's the intersection. Because from Mark 8 forward, everything heads from Jesus' life towards Jerusalem, towards the cross. And so here in Mark 8, uh, up to this point, we've been reading about the ministry of Christ, the healings of Christ, the teachings of Christ, but here in Mark 8, Jesus wants to press in on his disciples. He wants to press them and their hearts to see if they understood his identity. So he asked them a simple yet profound question. He says, who am I? Who am I? Well, the apostle Peter speaks up in verse 29 and says, you are the Christ. You are the Christ. Peter had the right title. Jesus is the Christ. But Peter had the wrong job description of what the Christ came to do. Jesus was the Christ, 
But it was unimaginable for the disciples to think that the promised Messiah from the Old Testament scriptures, that God's chosen servant would have to suffer and die. That was beyond what they could even fathom. So Jesus tells them what it was that the Christ must do. He says, no, you've got the title right. You've got the job description wrong. Let me share with you God's redemptive plan, his purposes for me. So look at verse 31. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. This is exactly the discussion that Luke wrote down in the resurrection story of chapter 24 that I started reading uh, just a few moments ago. When the angel said to the women, remember how he told you while he was still in Galilee, when he was there at Caesarea Philippi, that the Son of Man must be delivered into the hands of sinful men and be crucified, and on the third day, rise. This is the heart of the gospel, that Jesus would suffer for the sins of the world and die, and that he would rise from the dead, showing that death and sin had been defeated for anyone who would believe, for anyone who would place their faith in him. Not simply the Jew, but the whole world. This was his central message, the gospel. And he announces it over and over and over again as preparation for his disciples. They didn't totally understand it. They had the right title, wrong job description. But after the resurrection, after this day, it started to sink in. Let me just share a few of those texts with you. In Mark chapter 9, the very next chapter, Jesus says, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed, after three days, he will rise. Mark chapter 10, the next chapter after that. See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. And they will mock him and spit on him and flog him and kill him. And after three days, he will rise. John chapter 2, the beginning of Jesus' ministry, when he's responding to questions from the religious elites of the day, he says, destroy this temple, and in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple, and you will raise it up in three days? But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When, therefore, he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said this, and they believed the scriptures and the word that Jesus had spoken. The gospel, friends, this morning, let me remind you, the gospel is simple. It's a simple message. And Jesus drove it home with his disciples time and time again. He basically says, if you believe he died for your sin... If you believe his victory over death will be your victory over death, if you submit your life to his lordship as the son of God because you know his death and resurrection heals your broken life and it heals your broken relationship with God the Father, then you will be saved and you will be resurrected just like Christ was. See, in other world religions, the goal, the ultimate reality is to escape the body and to flee from the earth. But in Christianity, the goal is to have a new body, 
a resurrected body. This was part of Jewish thought. This is what Jesus would have anticipated. This is what the Jews would have talked about, a resurrected body, a perfected body. And to live in that resurrected, eternal, perfected body on this earth, which has been made new with God forever. That's the hope of Christianity. And while our bodies will be perfected, being with our perfect God, that's really the prize. That's ultimately the prize. Now think about it. Which of those two impulses is closer to the longing of the human heart? To leave the body and be some kind of soul just kind of floating around? Or to have a new body, a perfected body? For me at least, and I think for most, it's to have a new body and a perfected body. We have this deep connection between our psyche and our bodies. For me, it would be the body of a healthy 25-year-old. That would be my preference, to go back to that year and have that body at that time. This is why we get so depressed as people when our bodies get worse over time. If you're 25, we don't want to talk to you today, but, but for all the rest of you, you know what I'm talking about. Your body just starts to be, it begins this decaying process, and there's nothing we can really do to stop it. Uh, we try to do all kinds of things. People spend gobs of money going to gyms, going on diets, trying different routines, getting different accountability. That's why we have grocery stores like Whole Foods that charges you like 25 bucks for an orange. Because if you go there and you buy the stuff, you think that your body is gonna somehow recover youth. And so people go there and they're like, I'm gonna buy quinoa and basil plants and, and just eat this stuff all day long. It's gonna be fantastic. And I found the fountain of youth. Uh, there was somebody in my neighborhood group, uh, they, they shopped there. And I know it has to break the bank, but they shopped there. And they came to our neighborhood group last week and they were bringing dessert. I didn't even know Whole Foods had desserts, but they were bringing desserts and they had it from Whole Foods. So they pull out this box and on the box, it's got this big organic at the top, of course, and it's got underneath of that healthy choice. And it has a description where if you believed all the things on the front of that box, you would be convinced this thing will cure you from whatever it is that's wrong with you. And so it said, organic, healthy choice, fudge bars. <laughs> I've had one every day. I feel 25 again now. It's, it, it works. It's fantastic. I mean, I've been eating them every day. And so that's why I tell my wife, it says it's from Whole Foods. It's from Whole Foods, Katie. This is good for me. It's totally good for me. So we do this. We, we try to recreate or reverse a process that we know is irreversible. For some of you here, I want to turn it serious for a moment because for your body, it didn't maybe even take 25 years to see decay. Or maybe you're far beyond it and you see what you're going through. It could be the struggle of cancer. It could be the struggle of illness, someone that you care about, someone that you're loving. And in all of those situations, it causes us to think, I wish I could just trade this in for a new one, for a perfected one. That is, that is the hope of the resurrection. That is what we see here in Christ. Now, for Peter, in Mark chapter 8... All of this talk about Jesus suffering, his dying, and then his resurrecting in a perfected body, he had no patience for it. He's like, no, this isn't what's going to happen. This is not what's going to happen to you. The Christ, it's a different job description. And so he rebukes Jesus. He thinks all of this talk is just foolishness. 
It's foolishness. Well, then Jesus rebukes him and corrects all of the disciples. And he does so by telling them there are only two appropriate responses to his death and resurrection. He tells them, he tells the crowds, he's telling us today, there are only two appropriate responses to the resurrection of Jesus Christ. That's the part of it we're focusing on. So here we find the answer to the question, what should be our response to Jesus' resurrection? Here's number one. The resurrection demands we lay down our lives. If this really happened, if he rose from the dead, if he is God in flesh, then we cannot casually stand by and say, yeah, I've heard that story, sure. It demands we lay down our lives and submit to his lordship. Look at verse 34. And calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? Jesus is saying here, I have to die to defeat death, and it's the same for you. You need to lose your life in order to save it. If you're going to follow me, you need to deny yourself, take up your cross, and lose your life. Now, if Jesus went to a marketing agency with this message and said, this is my message, I want it propagated around the world, here's what it is. I'm going to tell people to pick up their crucifixion cross, and that's what it means to be my follower. That marketing agency, what are they going to say? They're going to say, that's not going to pull well with focus groups. People aren't going to like that. You need to soften your message. You need to make something that's a little easier pill to swallow, something that goes down easier. You got you to gotta set a realistic standard for this whole Christianity thing. You need to change your message. That's too harsh. That's too strong. That's too high of a bar. Our culture tells us that life is really about gaining the world. Here's the message our society sells. If you gain friends, if you gain money, if you gain experiences, if you gain the affection of that special person, if you gain status, if you gain material possessions, if you gain the recognition of friends, then your life is valuable. You've arrived. This is the paradigm of a successful life that we in the West would hold as an inalienable right and a truism. We don't even question it. We put people through 12 years of elementary school and middle school and high school education to groom them for this paradigm. And parents freak out if something derails their kids on the way to their realizing this American dream, this nirvana. Gaining the whole world, our culture says, is life. That is life. Jesus says, no, no. You can gain the whole world and lose your life. What happens when you set your identity on gaining the whole world? What does this look like? Well, for a lot of people, I think thousands upon thousands within our society, maybe many of you here today, gaining the whole world, it looks like this. It, 
your world gets all wrapped up in your spouse. That's your world. Now my life's complete. Your world gets all wrapped up in your, your money and your success and your kids. That's a huge one. Or, or what kind of friends uh, you have or what your friends think of you or your health. But then one day, as we all know too well, your spouse, your money, your success, your friends, your kids, your health, because we don't have ultimate control, one day those things or one of those things or many of those things simply goes away. Then what? What have you gained? You can gain the whole world and lose your very life. When your world is built on these things, you will no doubt feel uneasy, anxious, and unsteady. Because these are things you cannot control. It just takes one visit to the doctor's office to find out something's going on with your spouse. It takes one accident on one day with a child before that's destroyed. It, it takes one issue with the market before that's destroyed. All these things come up and we know we can't control it, so we're left with anxiety. But Jesus says when you give away your life and you build it on him and on his gospel, on the resurrection, his death and resurrection, you'll actually then save your life. The anxiety and fear begin to melt away because you'll be safe with Jesus. Your spouse may go away, but Jesus won't. The economy can crash, but he won't. Your youthfulness will go away, but he won't. Building your life on Jesus and his gospel is powerful because he's untouchable. That's what the resurrection proves. But when you follow him, you have to be willing to die. Now, you might object and say, wait, I thought you just said I would be safe. You're safe if you have eternity in mind. You're safe in Jesus if you have eternity in mind. He promises to be with you through your suffering. He promises to be with you through your pain that you're experiencing even now. He promises to be with you through your death and place you into the arms of God for all eternity, your creator. But if you live for yourself today, then his call to take up your cross and follow him, that probably sounds like utter foolishness to you. Sounds like a waste of time. First Corinthians, Paul wrote it this way, for the word of the cross is folly, to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. Just like Peter, a lot of people today have the right title for Jesus, but the wrong job description on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. And that demonstrates their lack of faith. Most people like a domesticated Christianity, a watered down Christianity, a Christianity that goes down easy, the picture of a crucifixion and a cross, that simply doesn't go down easy, does it? It's not an easy picture. It's not easy to swallow. It's not smooth. N.T. Wright, the author and pastor, he said, if you had actually seen a crucifixion or two, as many in the Roman world would have, your sleep itself would have been invaded by nightmares as the memories came flooding back unbidden. Memories of humans half alive and half dead, lingering on perhaps for days on end, covered in blood and flies, nibbled by rats, pecked at by crows, with weeping but helpless relatives standing by and watching, and with hostile or mocking crowds adding their insults to the terrible injuries. 
There's a famous preacher. Some of you listen to him. Some of you probably love him. I wouldn't call him a Christian preacher, but he's a preacher of sorts. And he actually wrote that the call that Jesus says right here to take up your cross, that people who live in light of his death and resurrection will take up their cross and follow him, that means that Jesus will bring, you, bring out the champion in you. That's his take on it. That just means Jesus will bring out the champion in you. Now, you tell me if that doesn't sound like a marketing department frantically trying to make Jesus' call to take up your cross palatable to the masses. That's what it does. Crucifixion, being covered in blood and flies, nibbled by rats, pecked by crows, means that Jesus will bring out the champion in you. We must not domesticate the gospel. We must not soften its blow. It is the power of true life. It is the power to bring eternal life. But this domestication and softening of it, that rids it of its power. It can save. The reason death by crucifixion or any other means could not stop the growth of the church Isn't that fascinating? This is what Jesus actually told his disciples. He was crucified in a horrible manner. He was resurrected to life, and Christianity exploded on the scene. How? How could he do it with such a hard message? A simple message, a hopeful message, a grace-filled message, a message of love and forgiveness, but it's going to cost a lot. How? Well, it's because they believed in the resurrection. They believed it. Real faith. The disciples believed that if the Romans hung their bodies on two pieces of wood, God was going to give them a new body like the Lord's that they had seen. And because of that, they were without fear. Belief in the resurrection, true belief, true faith in the resurrection changes everything. It changes everything. You may lose your life, but you will gain eternity with God. My question for you this morning at this point is, is that enough for you? Is the promise of eternity with God, forgiven in a perfected body, is that enough for you? Or is the enticement of this world, does that seem better? You might ask, well, what does this look like for me? I've heard it put this way, laying down your life, it might not be a cross like Jesus, but it means surrendering all that I am to all that I know about Jesus. Surrendering all that I am to all that I know about Jesus. And I've told you a lot of basic things about the gospel today on what it means to be a follower of Jesus. That he came, he died for your sin, for my sin. That he was raised to life, overcoming sin, death, and the grave. And that victory is not simply his victory, it's our victory through faith. So he can resurrect our broken lives. He can resurrect uh, the, the, the sinfulness within us and bring us to a place of restoration with the Father. It changes everything. It means surrendering to that reality and all that you know about Jesus. That's where faith starts. So what should be our response to Jesus' resurrection? Well, first, it demands we lay down our lives and submit our life to Christ, not try to gain the world for ourselves. Second, The resurrection requires that we not be ashamed. Mark chapter 8, verse 38 now. For whoever is ashamed of me and of my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, 
Of him will the Son of Man also be ashamed when he comes in the glory of his Father with the holy angels. Now, first, when you hear that, you might think, man, I've, I've messed this one up. Well, you need to remember that Jesus said this to his disciples. And who was amongst the disciples? Peter. Peter was there. And what happened just a few weeks later? Well, in many days from this conversation, Peter actually denied Jesus three times. He was ashamed of Christ. And yet the trajectory of Peter's life proved his faith, strengthened his faith, so that he no longer became ashamed of Christ. He actually then took on with full confidence his faith in the assurance of Christ. And so Peter, as the story goes, was captured, arrested, and when they went to crucify him, he said, no, no, I I do not want to be crucified in the same manner as my Lord, and so they crucified him upside down. His faith, the trajectory of his faith, proved that he was not ashamed of the gospel, and that's Jesus' point here, that as we walk through life, we cannot live out some kind of faith and call it faith where we're ashamed of him. Can I share with you another Babylon Bee article? Here's the title. You'll like this one. This is good. Retractable Christian fish decal now available. (laughs) So this is in Nashville, Tennessee, apparently. Let me give you the description. Lifeway Christian Resources announced Thursday a new modification kit that allows Christian drivers to hide their car's ichthus fish decal from view at the push of a button. The aftermarket mod includes a dashboard button for retracting one's Christian fish at will, as well as the wiring and body modifications necessary to instantly retract the symbol as needed. It's interesting because sometimes this is what you see. I I, I want Jesus. Sure, I, I believe in the resurrection. He's a part of my life. But you know, when, when I'm really holding on to the world, when I'm really going after what I want, I, I don't want you to associate my character with him now. I, I, if it's going to cost me something, if there's some danger, if there's something I have to give up, if there's something I have to change, if I have to loosen my grip on all these things that I have in life, then I'm not sure I want to be associated as closely. Can't you just kind of be kind of lukewarm? There's no such thing as a casual response to a man coming out of a tomb alive after being crucified. It doesn't allow for that. Paul sure didn't think so. He said in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes. Let me remind us all this morning, there is no pressure on us. There is no pressure on us from our culture, regardless of what they write, regardless of what they say. There is no pressure on us to make the message of Jesus something that, is, that it isn't. It's simple. It's a simple message of hope, love, and salvation. And the world thinks it's absolute foolishness. It's always been that way. It's always been that way. The disciples weren't ashamed. They went to their death, some of them when they were young men, some of them when they were old men. But they went to their death knowing that they had gained eternal life. 
They had assurance of faith. And it reminds me on this Easter Sunday, in light of the resurrection, I was thinking about this this morning, encouraging my own heart this morning, reminding myself this morning, I am not ashamed of Christ. I'm not ashamed of the gospel. He saved my life. He has saved my soul. He has saved me from my sin. He has saved me from my shame. He called me out of my spiritual grave. He's resurrected my life. That's why Easter is such a celebration for those of faith. Because he's resurrected our life. We were dead, now alive. We were broken, now healed. We were once sons and daughters of wrath. Now we're sons and daughters of the king. He's done all of this. He's proven it. He's demonstrated it through the power of the resurrection. How about you? How about you? If you have not submitted to Jesus Christ, he can save your life. All this stuff the world offers, it won't save you. You know it. We all do. It doesn't ultimately satisfy. He can save your soul. He can heal your brokenness. He can take away your shame. He's calling you out of your spiritual grave. He wants to resurrect your life. What should be our response to Jesus' resurrection? He tells us it demands that we lay down our lives, that we submit to him. And it requires that we not be ashamed. Where are you today? I'm going to close this in a word of prayer. And if you have not ever submitted your life to Christ, maybe you had it down. Maybe you've been part of that casual Christianity. But you've still been gaining the world or pursuing the world. And you know, you know deep down this ultimately will not satisfy. And you know it might not stand up when you're actually in the presence of a holy God. You know the only thing in that day that will save you is the power of a perfected, a perfect resurrection that is accomplished for you through Christ. That's the hope of our faith. And so as I pray, if you want to receive him, you can even pray it in your heart. And as you do, God will hear you if there's sincerity of faith. But for all of us here who have received Jesus, this is why Easter Sunday is so good. Because of the resurrection, we are saved, we are healed, we are brought back to life, we are resurrected in every part of our being. And we don't see all of that reality right now, but that is our future hope. Is it enough for you? That's why we celebrate. That's why we sing.